Uh, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, uh, if I wanted to do something, I could easily find the motivation to do it. And then if I was asked to do something I didn't want to do, I could easily find the motivation to delay. Anybody else in that camp? I'm a parent now. I have kids that can do the exact same thing. You know, you, you're going to go to the park or something like that. You can find your shoes in an instant, right? You're going to go to school. Well, we can't find the shoes all of a sudden. Or you're, you're asking them to, to do something like sweep or do something like that. And they're like, you know, they can figure out about a dozen ways to delay that task if they don't want to do it. Now, as we grow up, uh, we can learn habits of such things as procrastination or even making excuses. You know, as we grow up, we call it, we call it dropping the ball when we kind of don't do something that we should do. That's our responsibility. And I was reminded this week, we can easily make a lot of excuses. Certainly, we have reasons sometimes for the things that don't happen in life, but we can make an awful lot of excuses sometimes. Um, and I was reminded of a quote this week from Benjamin Franklin, who says, He that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. It's powerful, isn't it? And what we're going to see this morning, we're going to look in 1 Samuel 13. We heard uh, verses 1 through 15 this morning. We're going we're to get into 11 through 14. Really a, a failure on the part of Saul, who kind of had a good excuse at that point. God asks obedience from us. That's what Saul was supposed to learn. That's what, that, that's what God desires from us. And, and I'll give you the, the secret from the beginning. Uh, obedience is something that shapes us. That's part of what it's doing. That's why God's asking us to be obedient. It'll shape us in the process. And it'll draw us in a Godward direction. It'll draw us back towards God. Whereas disobedience draws us in the other direction. It takes us somewhere else. God desires obedience. And so we're going to look at 1 Samuel 13 in a moment. And the backstory for this is that Saul has now been uh, anointed king of Israel. And the Israelites run into some trouble here. Saul has been actually asked to go to, uh, we heard Gilgal is the area. That's just fun to say. And, and he's been asked to go there and wait for Samuel seven days. Now, in the process of all of this uh, anointing and everything that goes on, the Philistines, the rivals of Israel at the time, these coastal people who we've already run into in this series uh, and will keep running into them, uh, the Philistines are kind of antagonizing uh, some folks in Israel, uh, and they're, they're trying to humiliate them ultimately and humiliate Israel. In fact, they, uh, uh, Jonathan has stirred up some trouble, so that's part of the problem, Saul's son. But what's happened is uh, the Philistines have come to a couple towns, basically, and said, uh, we want you to basically do what we want, or else we're going to come in and humiliate you by plucking out one eye from every man, is what they say. And that's going to be humiliation, which, of course, would hurt, too. It's a terrible thing. Saul hears about this, and so they're going to take these Philistines on. And Saul's supposed to wait seven days for Samuel, the prophet, to come and, and uh, do this offering before they enter into battle with the Philistines and go any further. Saul, however, and here we can go to 1 Samuel 13. Saul, however, takes things into his own hands. Because Samuel doesn't show after seven days, people, the soldiers start fleeing, and we heard this this morning. And then starting in verse 11, just after Saul has offered the burnt offering himself, it says, what have you done, said Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. 
and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So Saul disobeys. It's, it's, the command is, wait until Samuel comes, Samuel offers a burnt offering, then proceed against the Philistines. Saul gets concerned and worried, takes matters into his own hands. Now the consequence of this is that Saul loses the, the chance of a dynasty, really, is the first thing that he loses. The, the, your, your kingdom is not going to last forever now, as God promised it would. It was a grace that God gave Saul, who wasn't really supposed to be king in the first place. Further than that, part of the consequence is that God's already chosen something. And how do you think this hit Saul, a man after God's own heart? Saul, you're not. God's chosen somebody after his own heart to take over. But we, we can see that as the story progresses, if you keep reading on, you can see that uh, this functions more like a, a prince, just like Saul did. God anointed Saul through Samuel. And, and Saul grew into the, is growing into the role, really. So, in a sense, there's, there's that sort of princely sense here, too. David, who we'll discover later, is going to be the anointed one, a man after God's own heart, will kind of work into the position, if you will, over time. Because the, the, the plus side of things for Saul is he's not asked to give an immediate resignation, if you notice. He's still got some level of, of kingship and control. There's sort of an act of grace, I think, on God's part. You're, the legacy's gone, Saul. Somebody else is going to be chosen, but you're not completely removed from office. You still could have a role here. There's still some grace, I think, given to Saul. And as we look at what's happening in Israel, it's, uh, it's a lot of transition is going on right now. Because one of the key passages, which we're not looking at this morning, but, but you certainly are, I'm encouraging you to do so this afternoon, is Judge, or, uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 12. Uh, you can look at Judges 12 too, but I don't remember what happens there. 1 Samuel 12, uh, where Samuel is really transferring power over to Saul. He's giving a, a short history of Israel, largely with the judges in mind. That's what the transfer of power is happening here. It's from the days of the judges to now a kingship in Israel. And it's not a, big, it's not a small deal. You know, we look at uh, nations around the world who are trying to change governance systems. It takes an awful lot of work, doesn't it? We're even talking about it at a meeting today. It takes a lot of work, even in the church context, to change governance systems. I mean, I was thinking about things that, that we've gotten worked up about in our own country over the last couple decades. And I, the things that came to mind were Y2K. Do you remember those days? People stockpiled worried about this big transition that was going to happen. People worried and even got freaked out when Twinkies were stopped in production, for goodness sakes. Right? We get worked up about an awful lot of things. This is a huge transition that's going on in the life of Israel. They've been for a few centuries under the rule of judges, now to switch over to a different kind of rule. And Samuel's recounting this story. And in, in Judges 21-25... We've heard this story a number of times. This is part of what, what the expectation should have been on their part. Judges uh, ends, and it says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. We've, we've seen that this is the world that Samuel, as a priest, came into as the final judge. 
And you could sense that there's an expectation that as they transfer this sort of power, if you will, from a, a, a judge to a king, that things should get better. In those days, Israel had no king. Now they're going to have a king. Things are going to be going up at this point. And, and let's understand, when it comes to what a judge is, uh, a judge wasn't somebody who just sat in a robe with a gavel in the ancient world. In, this, in, in Israel, it's somebody who had a priestly function, but they're really kind of a church-state ruler to help make sure that things function within that. They function as a priest to go before God for the people, but they also call the people to righteousness and, and uh, take care of the, the day-to-day operations so people will walk uh, appropriately in the ways of the Lord and treat each other well. And then things go well on a civil level, too. They're doing all of that. Now, with a king, there's supposed to be an elevation of that power. That's the hope. Israel also, in this period of time, part of the tension that lives there is that Israel is the underdog compared to the Philistines. They have, over that period of the judges, they settled down. In their allotted area for the 12 tribes, they settled down and became, uh, were transitioning, and this takes a long time, too, from being a nomadic people moving around in tents now to being settled and needing to learn farming and and agriculture in their their land but they're at, at a, uh, they're they're behind the Philistines who already had an advantage over them at this point because the Philistines already had garrisons in the area and basically can keep an eye on them that's what's going on that prompts what's what the problem that Saul is trying to address the Philistines already kind of have spies everywhere but really within this agricultural world this is what we call the iron age when iron is the technology of the time and the Philistines have that and the Israelites don't apparently in their nomadic wanderings they didn't really learn smithing very well or at all but the Philistines have that. So you can read a little bit further in chapter 13 that the Philistines had the monopoly on farm tools that were actually really good and functional and weapons. So you can see that fear would, would reign in Israel if the Philistines have the good weapons and we have either no weapons or really weak weapons comparatively to their iron tools and weapons. And they can ask a lot of money from us for the farm implements and things like that, which are really no weapons at all. So you can see there's a lot of tension here of transfer of power of the days when uh, they're the underdog quite clearly. And when Samuel gets up and and does this transfer of power, he kind of sets us up to think it's going to be better or it should be better or that Saul needs to step up as king and be better because he's comparing this to the judges, the days of the judges in many ways. And if you were to look at at a Hebrew text of scripture, uh, you would see that our English uh, translations First of all, break up Samuel into 1st and 2nd Samuel. It's one originally. And then secondly, we have the book of Ruth in between Judges and 1st Samuel. They don't in a Hebrew version of the Bible. So when we saw that last verse in Judges, the next thing that happens is, now here's the transition into 1st Samuel, into the world of the kings. And so the comparison makes total sense that Samuel ends up making to the days of the Judges and what, pe- what happened and what should happen under Saul. We can see this comparison play out in real time with Saul's life. And if you look at, just take example of of one of the prime great judges, Gideon, you can see how one stacks up and one doesn't. If you look at Gideon, now he is Judges 6, you can read that later. Gideon was fighting against the Midianites. People were living in fear in Israel and the land. They were living in caves uh, out of fear of the Midianites. Just like in Saul's day, the Philistines were causing them to live in fear. 
With Gideon, he's called by God to go and take on the Midianites. And of course, he's pretty sheepish about that. He needs a couple tests to, to know he's really called by God to take on the Midianites. Saul is anointed by God and seems humble at the beginning, but seems to fit into the role pretty well, pretty quickly. There's some similarities here. Gideon is given a force of about 30,000, and God says, that's too many to accomplish what I want to accomplish. Tell whoever wants to leave to leave. It gets reduced to 10,000. God says, that's still too many. And then he ends up with 300 for a force that's far bigger than what he's going to take on. Saul is asked to wait seven days to go into battle with a force that was, again, an underdog force, but much bigger and probably had a much better chance than Gideon's force. But he can't even wait the seven days, and his force starts reducing by the end of the time just out of fear. Gideon's does it out of, really out of obedience. And then Gideon goes into battle and actually does what God asks him to do. Saul, on the other hand, can't wait, and he fails. And Gideon, interestingly, I had not noticed this until this week, Gideon is the only uh, one of the judges who's offered a kingship by the people. They say, we want you to be our king. And Gideon turns them down, a man of humility. But you see these stacked up. They knew this story. They knew Gideon. They knew Deborah. They knew the judges. They knew these people who had pulled them out of sin and the consequences of sin and become their salvation. That's what the judges were supposed to do. Isn't a king supposed to be better? They could see Gideon was faithful. Gideon was a hero. Saul turns out to not be faithful, and Saul is no role model as it turns out. And that's what there's the comparison they're seeing. And Saul, at the end of the day, this is the first of a couple times that he's really going to have an issue of obedience. Saul thinks winning is all that matters in this case, but it's really obedience that mattered. That's what he was called to do. He wasn't called to win the battle. He was called to be obedient, and God would take care of the rest. But he wasn't. I was reading uh, an article this week by... A Christian apologist named J. Warner Wallace, very interesting guy, who was answering a question somebody had sent to him, why doesn't God destroy evil? Which I think is a pressing question for so many of us. And, and Wallace uh, actually quoted uh, Francis Chan. Uh, so now I'm quoting one person, quoting another person. But Francis Chan, who delivered a, a sermon on this a number of years ago, and I thought it was really profound what he said, fits in with this idea of obedience quite well. So Francis Chan says, if the goal for the Christian is to glorify God, then think about this. Which scenario actually brings more glory to God and silences the devil? To simply destroy the devil? Or to leave a time when the devil can tempt us with all the sin the world has to offer, yet we, as followers of Jesus, genuinely respond to that temptation with, no thanks, I've got God, and I'd rather have him than anything else. Which brings more glory to God. And I would suggest to you that obedience is a shaping force. Obedience, uh, uh, among many things, means that we would enjoy God's presence. That's why we're doing it. If you love God, you're going to obey. Why? Because you love God. That's, why, that's the motivation for why we're going to do it. Not simply for benefit, not simply to, to keep us from the penalty of sin, but because we would love God and we would grieve over sin. That that grieves God, it would grieve us. 
With Saul, what happens? He's supposed to wait seven days. Samuel is supposed to come, initiate the sacrifice. The reality is when Saul, Saul sacrifices without Samuel, and then if you look at it, he kind of plays dumb and blames Samuel a little bit for what happened. Well, you didn't show up, so I just went ahead and did this. And we start to see Saul's sins rising to the surface and taking over, over the obedience he should be expressing. We see pride coming out and impatience. And we see that what that does is it, it breaks trust. It breaks trust with him and Samuel, certainly with, with Saul and God. To put it in the words of Eugene Peterson, what, what we have here is a case where Saul fears the Philistines more than God. That was his motivation. Rather than doing God's work and God's will, God's way, Saul feared the Philistines. Saul feared what others thought. Saul feared the loss of his army. Paul, or Saul is granted this kingship, but then he ends up succumbing to his own pride in the process. He's granted this great power and authority and direction, but he doesn't take it. He doesn't use it well. And so in chapter 13, verse 12, Saul has said, you know, when you didn't show up, Samuel, you didn't show up, he says. So I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Do you see how he works it? Saul presents it as if he's doing something good when he's disobeying. Isn't that interesting? Saul, Saul comes uh, uh, to, to Samuel with pride, but he acts as if it's faithfulness. Saul stands before Samuel, and as it turns out, God, and he gives a sense of false piety. I'm really holy, but it's fake. It's fake holiness. He's a righteousness poser. He's, he's pretending to be right, but he's not. God's promise to Saul was a kingdom that would last forever. But God, or Saul chose pride over God's presence, over the promises that God would deliver. He, he rested in his own self-knowledge, and that prevented him from God-knowledge. That's what happens. It's the prodigal son is what it is. He says, I know better. Just like the prodigal son goes to his father and says, give me the inheritance now. I know what to do with my life better than you do. Translation, I wish you were dead, is what he's saying. Give me the inheritance before you die. So Saul is doing that exact same thing with God. He's giving into pride over God's presence. He's giving into worry over obedience. Patience for him is not a virtue. It's just a means to an end. Saul won't wait. We have to recognize that, that in obedience, that's a, 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 the, a means of enjoying God's presence, but it's a tool to shape us. That's what obedience is doing functionally. When we obey, we're being shaped into who God wants us to be. But just like Saul, sometimes we can think that, that the fault is on God's side or somebody else's side, or we can make excuses for, for why we wouldn't obey and do what God has asked of us. So we'll pray and we don't get what we want, and we think there's something wrong with God rather than something wrong on this side of the equation, right? It's very tempting, far too tempting sometimes, to do what we want to do in life and then ask God to baptize it rather than ask for direction and follow through. Saul's asking for a baptism of his disobedience. Obedience is intended to shape us 
And for us who choose Jesus Christ, it's intended to make us more like Jesus Christ. Our obedience is intended to do that. So we talked earlier about uh, children doing chores. And, and now as a parent, uh, I, I can tell you we've, we've read and we've heard from people that if you want them to be responsible adults and if you want them to do chores later in life, you ought to give them chores to do now that are achievable, that are doable because they want to help when they're young. Take them up on the offer, right? It'll take six times longer and it won't be done as well. Take them up on the offer and help them learn to be better. Now, there are days when it's just like, I just want to clean up the crayons. This is just too much. But train them in the way that they should go. And in a sense, that's what obedience is doing for us. That's what God is trying to do with the people. And in the Old Testament here, God is trying to train a people to live in obedience to him. He's trying to get the leader on board. He's trying to have the people on board. But God is doing the exact same thing for us who say yes to Jesus Christ as his disciples. He's saying, okay, now you're going to enter into the kingdom of God. The kingdom is coming. Let me teach you how to live as kingdom people. That's what obedience is doing when we obey God. And there's no substitute for this. There's no substitute for God's presence or God's promises. And the obedience is what leads us to that direction. Now, there are lots of things that claim to be substitutes, that claim to give us the same thing, but they're not real. They're false. As Jesus even tells us, the thief comes only to kill and destroy and steal. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's the promise that we're given. Nothing else can give that promise. It can give us happiness for a while, self-satisfaction for a while, but not abundant or full life. It strikes me as interesting that God could have subdued the Philistines because we've already seen it happen in 1 Samuel. When the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines, what was demonstrated over those seven months to the Philistines? God's power over and over. The Philistines wanted to get rid of that thing after seven months because it afflicted them with problems right and left. They just had issues over and over again because God's power and presence was there revealing itself over and over. God could have taken care of the Philistines in a heartbeat with a word. It strikes me that God wanted something out of Saul and the people in this case. God wanted them to respond and grow in their obedience and thus their character and draw close to him. He could have taken care of the problem. He was shaping them. And they wouldn't allow him to shape them. We're called to the same kind of shaping character. The Old Testament called Israel to be a nation of priests, to be holy as God is holy. Peter in the book of 1 Peter relates the same thing to those who follow Christ. Be holy as God is holy, drawn to his presence. That requires obedience. That requires us drawing near to him. Obedience draws us. It shapes us. Obedience shapes us to make us more like Christ. And obedience comes from love of God. Let me give you these last words of encouragement from Colossians 3, of of where we should set our hearts and minds. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appeared, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That's what we're called to do, to live in obedience that way. And that's where it takes us, to give glory to God as we live in obedience to him, to love God in the process, to enjoy God's presence and live into God's promises. Let's pray together. 
God, you are good. You promise to us good things if we'll only take hold of those. Don't let us be fooled today by the things that deceive us, that offer us life that don't truly deliver, but help us grasp hold of the life that is truly life. Help us be obedient today to not live in regret, to not make excuses and say, oh, I should do this someday. Oh, I should do that someday. I should read my Bible. I should pray more. I should serve more. I should be in church more. I should go visit that person. I should go do this. Rather than live by excuses, Father, to be obedient to your will and your ways. Not to ask you to come behind us and push us, but to follow you because you guide us forward. Father, may we discover life today in the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ. For those of us that are feeling distant from him today, Father, help us release the sin that holds us down, the guilt that holds us back, the parts of our lives that we're not willing to hand over. May you redeem those today and draw us into your presence. Pray this in your name. Amen.